listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. All right, here we go. So, if you are ever in a conversation with someone and you can tell that you're losing them, not speaking from experience here, of course, but if this happens to happen to you, I can tell you the secret trick to get them back on track, to get them engaged with you again. You just utter these six little words. Try it sometime. Let me tell you a story, right? Whether it's a kid or an adult, we all love a good story. And what we've been learning as we've been going through this series called The Story is that Scripture, the Bible, is a story. Now, notice I said singular story and not plural stories. While it's true that the Bible contains individual stories, we can talk about David and Goliath and Noah and the ark and, and Jonah and the whale and all of this. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible actually tells one single continuous narrative. There's like a, a scarlet thread that's woven throughout the whole thing. And just like in any good story, there is a, a single hero, there is an evil villain, there is a, a plot that, that, that the story follows, and then there's, there's resolution. You get to the book of Revelation, you find out that uh, the hero actually gets to slay the dragon, right? Now, the Bible is different from any other, any other story in the sense that it's, it's true, right? This is God's Word. It is God-breathed God and inspired and authoritative, right? So we know that the Bible is reliable. And yet, this single strand is, is woven throughout all of Scripture that tells us about how God is working to redeem His lost and broken creation. So one of the goals we've had during the story is for you to be able to give a clear, concise answer when someone comes up to you and asks, what is the Bible all about? What is the Bible all about? Because there's a lot of different ways you could go with that, right? A lot of different responses you could give. Well, we want you to be able to give one clear, concise answer in three distinct points. So I invite you now to say this with me because we've been learning it together. The Bible is the story of God's great love for us, how far we have gone from that love, and how far God was willing to go to get us back. Good job. You guys nailed it. Well, this week we're in chapter 20, which is the story of Esther and Esther's a little bit difficult to preach on because you can't really just do two or three verses in Esther. You kind of have to know the whole thing. So here is your Cliff Notes version of the book of Esther, okay? It takes place in Susa, which is one of the four capitals of the Persian Empire. You'll remember the Israelites were taken captive into exile, right? The northern kingdom to Assyria, the southern kingdom to Babylon, well, what happened with the southern kingdom of, of Babylon is eventually King Cyrus of the Persians came in and he conquered the Babylonians, and Cyrus issued this decree that the Judahites were allowed to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, right? Well, this happened, but not every 
Jewish person, not every Judahite, returned to Jerusalem. Many of them stayed in, in Persia. And so the book of Esther takes place uh, in Persia, in, in this, this place among some Jewish people who happened to stay behind while many others went off to rebuild the temple. And King Xerxes is the, is the king of Persia. It was Cyrus, of course, he issued the decree, and then Xerxes. And, and King Xerxes has a fight with his wife, Queen Vashti. And as a result, Esther becomes queen. Esther is Jewish. You're going to want to remember this. We'll come back to it. It's important. Esther is chosen to replace her. But then the villain enters the scene, King Haman. We saw Haman walking back and forth here a little bit ago, right? So you just think that's probably Haman was something like, looked something like that maybe, yeah? Haman is the picture of pride, and he wants to wipe out the entire Jewish nation just because one gentleman by the name of Mordecai, who happens to be Esther's cousin, refuses to bend the knee to him, refuses to respect him. So Haman gets up in arms about this. He petitions King Xerxes to sign an edict to purge the empire of the Jews. Xerxes agrees. Mordecai, however, he knows this is going to, spend, this is going to spell disaster for the Jewish people, right? If, if there's no Israel, there can't be a Messiah, there can't be a Savior. This, this is really serious. So he goes and he talks to Esther and he says, look, Esther, you have to talk to the king. You have to talk to the king. You have to go before him and bring this issue up and see if you can do anything about it. And Esther, understandably at first, is very fearful about this because the thing was, you can't actually approach the Persian king and expect to live without him summoning you. He had this thing called a golden scepter. It was just like this big, uh, resembled some sort of war instrument. And if the person approached them and he extended the golden scepter, then they were allowed to live. She doesn't know if this is going to happen. So she goes before him eventually. And lucky for her, the king looks on her with favor. He looks on Esther with favor. And actually, she does this a couple of different times. And in a dramatic twist, Esther invites the king and Haman because Haman was pretty high up in the king's administration. The king had actually appointed him there. She extends this invitation to a feast, a series of banquets, where she reveals her own ethnic identity because up until then it had been hidden. And she also reveals that Haman was the one behind the terrible plot to exterminate the Jews. The king is appalled. Long story short, he has Haman executed actually on the very pole that Haman had prepared to kill Mordecai on. So there's irony throughout this story everywhere you look. Mordecai ends up getting promoted. The evil edict is reversed. God miraculously rescues Israelites from destruction. So to this day, the Jews celebrate this festival. They commemorate it through Purim. And uh, it's actually coming up at the end of this month. So that's where our, our text is going to pick up this morning. This is from Esther 9, verses 20 through 22, and then I'm going to jump ahead to verses 26 through 28. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me now. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. And uh, if you have the story, it's on page 288 towards the bottom there, so you can also turn there. And I'll ask you to rise this morning as we read from God's Word together. Esther 9, beginning at verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. 
He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Therefore, these days were called Purim, poor, because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them without fail observed these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, I mentioned offhandedly the Ninja Turtles, so I wanted to return to this deep, rich theological theme. Now, Saturday morning at the Chelhog household was the best day of the week. I live for Saturday mornings, okay, guys? There used to be this time when you could not just pull up Disney Plus or Netflix or whatever and watch your shows. You had to be there, right? And from 7 to 9 a.m., Saturday mornings was cartoon time at our place. Now, the cool thing was Friday night was pizza night at the Chelhog. So, uh, and not just any kind of pizza, Red Baron pizza, all right? Had to be the Red Baron. If we were feeling really classy, maybe we'd get some DiGiorno. I mean, we weren't barbarians. Um, and then for some reason, cold pizza, have you noticed this thing? Cold pizza tastes better than regular pizza? Yeah? I don't get it. I, I, like, I don't understand this. Maybe there's been a, a study done on this. To under, to, I, don't, I don't know. Um, so Saturday morning, I was parked there in front of the TV watching the Ninja Turtles. Ninja Turtles were awesome because there are four of these guys, right? And we had four kids in our family, biological kids growing up. So we each got to pretend to be a Ninja Turtle. Now, if you don't know anything about the Ninja Turtles, allow me to enlighten you. There are four of them, and they each have a different personality and different weapons, okay? So there's Michelangelo. You can see him way on the left side there. He's the, he's the is it yellow or I think it's orange was, was his color that he wore. They all wore different colors. Michelangelo had these nunchucks, and nunchucks were pretty cool. And his personality was like, he didn't care so much about fighting crime. He was more interested in, in just eating pizza, so that was his deal. Then there was Leonardo. He was the blue one. He was the leader of the group. He had these awesome swords, kind of the fearless leader. There was Raphael, the red one. He was the rebel, kind of played by his own rules, and he had these things called sighs. They were these, like, three-pointed knives that he played with. Not played with, I guess he used them to actually fight. And then there was Donatello. Donatello was my guy. He was the purple one. He had the staff. He was the brains of the entire outfit. And so I loved Donatello. And like I said, all of us, the four kids, we got to pretend to be them. So we would run through the house from top to bottom, kicking and screaming and fighting the the crime that we encountered uh, in, in our house, and it was amazing. Heroes in a half shell, turtle power. Well, as human beings, we love our heroes and heroines, don't we? You don't have to look any further than the Ninja Turtles or the MC universe to see this. Characters like Captain America, Iron Man, and the Hulk, they've dominated the big screen for quite a while now. So it makes sense that when we open up our Bibles and crack this open and we read it, 
we're looking for heroes and we're looking for heroines too. That's just kind of the default approach that we have when we come to God's Word. We're looking for people who will show us how to, to live. We're looking for perfect lives. And that means we tend to see Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, as a kind of hall, and, hall of fame for larger-than-life characters who faithfully and wholeheartedly pursue God's purposes. In other words, we tend to read the Bible moralistically. We're looking for role models to follow. And if we apply this approach to the story of Esther this morning and, and we treat her as the heroine or a moralistic example, the headline might read something like this, Esther, the queen of beauty and courage, bravely saves her people from the plot of an evil villain using her wit and charm to come to the rescue. Sound familiar? Something like that, right? Esther was created for such a time as this. This is the phrase that we always latch on to, for such a time as this. You and I should strive to follow in her uncompromising footsteps. Now, the thing that, that happens when we approach the Bible in this way is we tend to crop other parts of the story out of the picture. In our attempt to, to whitewash these heroes and put them on pedestals, we tend to ignore other things. But if, if we're willing to see Esther in a more realistic light, not as an infallible heroine, but as the flesh and blood human being that she is, with fears and doubts and failings like the rest of us, another side of her story emerges. It's the story of a woman who hides her ethnicity and religion from the king because she doesn't want to put herself at risk. It's the story of a woman who is forced to join the harem of a drunken pagan king and spends the night with him in the fantasy suite. It's the story of a woman who understandably cares more about saving her own skin than her own people and eventually has to be prodded by her uncle into doing the right thing. Now, none of this is intended to drag Esther's name through the mud. It's simply to point out that even Queen Esther doesn't emerge from this story unscathed. In other words, Esther, like, like every other biblical character and like us, is fractured and flawed, loved by God not because of her virtue but in spite of her shortcomings. Esther is, Esther is, is loved by God not because of her virtue but in spite of her shortcomings. So the idea that this book is somehow supposed to serve as a model for young girls and women, be like Queen Esther, that just doesn't really cut it. I mean, I, I hope and I pray that my daughters do not have to go through anything like Queen Esther did. I, I don't want my kid sent off as a mail-order bride to join the harem of the crown prince of Iran. That's just me. That's kind of the modern-day take on that story. So yes, this, this chapter is about Esther and called the Queen of Beauty and Courage, but also Esther the Queen of Fear and Compromise. So then the question naturally arises, all right, pastor, if it's not about how to be like Esther, what is it ultimately about? Why would God spend all of his time writing a true story about Esther if it isn't meant to serve primarily as a role model? Well, to answer that, we actually have to look at a couple of passages in the New Testament where Jesus teaches us how to read our Bibles. You may remember that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to all sorts of people. There were a number of of sightings of, of Jesus. 
And one of these in particular was on the road to Emmaus. So Jesus is there. He's walking with two of his disciples. And here's part of what he said. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And here it is. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Concerning who? Himself. Jesus. What's he saying here? He's saying that that all the Bible, it's all about me. All of it. Every word, every page, every syllable points toward Jesus. So after he disappeared from their sight, a few verses later, he reappeared in front of all the disciples. I love this. Jesus is just like, you can almost picture like the twinkle in his eye as he's like disappearing and reappearing in front of them. You know he's got to be getting a kick out of this and their reactions. Luke 24, 44 through 45, he reappeared to all the disciples this time. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Jesus is saying that he is the secret key to interpreting all of Scripture. He has to to open their minds because by default, their minds, our minds are closed. By default, we don't put Jesus at the center of Scripture. We don't read Scripture correctly because we are narcissists at heart, curved in on ourselves. We think it's all about us. We think the world revolves around us. And that is revealed even in the way that we approach our Bible reading. I mean, the, the very first question that many of us ask whenever we, we crack open our Bibles is, how does this apply to me in my life? How does this get me out of the, the jam that I'm in? How does this help me overcome the struggles that I'm going through? Again, who's at the center of those questions? But really, Jesus is, is, is flipping this whole scheme on its head, and He's saying, look, the first question you should ask when you approach any page of Scripture is what is Jesus trying to teach me about Himself? It's a different question. What is Jesus trying to show me, to reveal to me about Himself here? In John 5.39, Jesus issues this rebuke to the Jewish leaders. He says, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. <laughs> He's saying, like, you, you, you know everything that's in, you know your Bibles. You know it frontwards and backwards. You can say all of the, the dates and the, and the places. You can even pronounce the weird names like Zerubbabel. Say that five times fast. And yet, you're still missing the point. You're not learning Scripture for Scripture's sake alone. You're learning it because it testifies about me. That's what Jesus is saying. Question 9 in our catechism, it gets at this issue like this. It asks the question, what is the main truth of the Bible? So we'll pretend we're all in confirmation here. You guys can respond with me. 
The main truth of the Bible is that Jesus is the only way of salvation. I love that. Boil it down. And it's hard. At, at, at the core of what the Bible teaches is this truth. Full stop. Jesus is the only way of salvation. The headline of the Old Testament so far is that God remains unswervingly faithful to His people despite their faithlessness. In spite of our many failures to obey God, to love Him with our whole heart, our, our tendency that we have to stray like wayward sheep from our good shepherd. Yet He chases us down to draw us back to Himself, to bring us to repentance and to offer salvation to all who will believe. This chapter then, rather than calling us to be like Esther, instead leaves us longing for someone more, someone better, someone who succeeds when all of the human actors on the stage fail. Seth Stewart articulates this beautifully. He says, Esther leaves us asking, where is a better king than Xerxes? Where is a better savior than Esther? Who is a better father than Mordecai? This book allows us to answer these questions with one resounding word, Christ. Unlike Esther, Jesus didn't hesitate to risk it all. He didn't give a thought to saving his own skin, but instead sacrificed it, literally laying down his own life to rescue us. And unlike Esther, Jesus didn't escape punishment, but was punished for our sin and mistakes, suffering on the cross and dying and rising again to new life in our place. Jesus is the new and better Esther. See that? Unlike King Xerxes and all of our earthly leaders, Jesus always rules justly and wisely. He always does what is right. He doesn't abuse His power or use it to His own advantage, but instead lays it down willingly for the benefit of the people that He rules. Jesus is the new and better King. And unlike Mordecai, who served as Esther's fill-in father, Jesus doesn't put those He loves in compromising situations, but instead delivers us from evil and always provides a way out of temptation. He is the good Father who loves each of His children intimately and wants to adopt His family. In fact, He wants us so much that He was willing to pay the ultimate price to win you back, to forgive you, and to save you. Jesus is the new and better Mordecai. And Jesus is the new and better us. Romans 5, 15 through 17 says it like this, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, talking about Adam here in the garden, Adam's sin, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, right? The wages of sin is death. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. This declaration that, that we are righteous and good and well-pleasing in God's sight apart from our works. 
For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? See, when we fail, Jesus succeeds. When we are weak, He is strong. When we are faithless, He is faithful. And His success, His strength, His faithfulness is reckoned to you as if you yourself possess those qualities. Now, here's what that means for you, brother and sister in Christ. You are no longer defined by your failures or your past mistakes, but by Jesus' success on your behalf. You are not defined by your sin, but by His perfect righteousness. And contrary to what the world tells you, your identity lies not in what you do or accomplish or perform, but in what you believe, in your faith, in Christ. You are a new creation. And let me say this too, if you're here today and and you're not a Christian, you're someone who says, man, I don't know about this whole Christianity thing, I'm kicking the tires, but I'm not sure if I want to drive it off the lot yet. If, If that is you, you need to know this, even you are not beyond His reach. Jesus loves you. Did you know that? Jesus loves you. He loved you so much that He died for you. However far you may have run, His arms are still open and His message is the same. Repent and believe the gospel. If you believe the message of the story, that you have gone far from God's love, but that He went even farther to win you back and to redeem you, then salvation can be yours today as well. Join us next week for chapter 21 as we're going to wrap up the Old Testament. We can do this for that, right? We're going to look at Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And what we're going to do is kind of apply that to our contemporary situation. We're going to look at this rebuilding and revitalization efforts and ask, what might that rebuilding and revitalization look like for us as a church here at Elam in Todd County in 2023? that's where we're headed. Let's pray. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastorkj. O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.